2: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 194. If you like Coimbra, try these other games. We'd like to thank our brand new Patreon backer, John. John, man, you rock. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, it is that time of year, things are getting a little colder, the holidays are starting to roll up on us, and of course, what's now becoming an annual celebration, at least for board gamers, Pax Unplugged is on its way.
0: Yeah, no, I was surprised like this morning like counting down I'm like wait a second. It's only 3
2: weeks away. <laughs> I got <laughs> We got to get ready for this. Ah. It's really surprising especially for us on the East Coast that when I'm going to game groups and I mention, "Oh, Pax is, you know, anyone going? Are you guys thinking about it?" And the large number of people that have never been previously to a board game convention, everyone's really interested in it. Even if they're not staying multiple days, everyone's looking to stop by, which is a lot of fun. And it's getting a lot of buzz considering it's only in its second year. So this is looking to be probably one of the biggest conventions of the year. There's a lot of cons in the fall, but...
0: You know, one's in Germany and the other one's not really that big. Con. you know, it has name recognition, but it's a tiny little con. PAX is big, lots of fun stuff to play. It's local for both of us. It's awesome. So I had the most fun there last year for sure. I'm excited for this year.
2: Yeah, and Philly is a great city. If you've never been to Philly, you should definitely check out the city of brotherly love. I know recently there was a report that Gen Con will be renewing at least, I think, a year or two more for their lease over an indie. So that recently popped up. So, you know, there's a lot of great gaming going on all over the place. As Anthony mentioned, Essen is finally, finally kind of wrapped up. And we're starting to see those games kind of like, you know, peek out at the table certain spaces. Hopefully, we'll see a lot of those games at PAX Unplugged. Many of you, if you're going out to BGG, I'm sure you're going to see a bunch of those out there. EuroQuest is coming up in Baltimore. So definitely a lot of Euro games will be hitting out there. So a lot of good fun stuff. And of course, you know, one of the big holidays for board gamers, Black Friday will be coming up and Cyber Monday. So we will keep you up to date. We'll have a shopping guide for you in two weeks to let you know what games you should be looking at, where you should be buying those games, and hopefully helping direct those best purchases so that you get the greatest games to the table. All right, Anthony, so that's what's going on with BGA. There is so much fun coming up. Let's talk about what everyone else is talking about. What's our question of the week? All right, question of the week,
0: because the holidays are upon us, if you're in the United States at least. Thanksgiving is only two weeks away, which is kind of crazy. I guess it's a little early this year because the first day of the month was a Thursday, so I'm completely thrown off right now. But... Because it's coming up and because we are running out of time to talk about it before, <laughs> before we start delving into those family meals and the inevitable games after the family meals, I asked everybody, what games do you pull out for big family gatherings like Thanksgiving, so lots of good answers. Uh, these are not going to be your typical strategy games because, of course, you were dealing with a lot of non gamers, children, cousins, grandparents, etc. Darren says One Night Ultimate Werewolf. Martin says he has games that are different for both sides of the family, so his side is cards, and his wife's side is Ticket to Ride. Uh, Trent says Scrabble, Monopoly, and Trivia. Um, Andrew, lucky guy, says Shadows Over Camelot and Cosmic Encounter. Chris and Another Chris, two Chris's, both said camel up. I don't know what the odds of that are. Uh, <laughs> Dan says cash and guns, which is awesome. I'd love to see that uh, that family meal. David mentions happy salmon, um, and then we had the party game trifecta here: code names, crypto and monikers from Drew. I think I'd probably go that route. Uh, the party side code names is great. Ticket to ride is really good too. I don't. I have. Good luck with that one if it's the right number of people. My kids really like Uno, and we can always get other people to play Uno because everybody knows Uno. So that kind of stuff, the strategy games are a little tougher at times just because it's not even like people don't want to play them. It's just corralling that many people long enough to teach them rules is difficult. So you got to keep it very, very simple, uh, at least on my side.
2: Yeah, for me, one of the games that really gets a lot of gameplay when there's family occasions, especially during these types of holidays, is Potion Explosion. It has one of those kind of candy crunch looking types of games to it. And, you know, it's kind of fun. It's colorful. A lot of people can play the game. People love pulling the marbles out. And Dixit. Dixit has some amazing artwork. So when people see those cards on the table, you can play, especially depending on what expansions you get, you can play a large, large number of people. And basically it's, come up with a story or a word or an expression or a sound or a song for a particular card and play that card and everyone else plays a card so it doesn't take really any time to teach that game and everyone just kind of enjoys going through the card so that's kind of like a perennial classic with my family all right so those are the games that are getting to our upcoming Thanksgiving and holiday tables if you like to jump in and let us know what games you're playing and want to share some pictures of those game nights that you're going to be having. Please hit us up on all of our social media. We'd love to hear from you. Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. The more information we get about you, the more stuff that we can put out and let everyone know what great games should be on their table for this upcoming holiday season. All right, Anthony, so that's what's happening with our listeners. All right, Anthony, so that's what's happening with our listeners. Now let's get on to the games that we want to hit our upcoming holiday tables. Let's get to our Acquisition Disorders. Okie doke.
0: I'm on it. Uh, (laughs) This is one that popped up kind of unexpectedly. It's been a ton of Kickstarters lately. Just too many. Too many Kickstarters lately. And so this one kind of just launched with, to my knowledge, not a ton of fanfare. I certainly didn't get a press release. Uh, And that's uh, Reavers of Midgard. It's the sequel to Champions of Midgard. And it's in the same world, same art style and everything, but not the same game. Call it a single worker placement game, meaning each player is going to put a single worker on a location that is inactivated by everybody. So it's kind of a, I don't know, like a twist on like something like Race for the Galaxy or something where there's like an action and everybody can kind of take that action, but there's multiple actions going on. There's also dice involved, of course, um, as in Champions of Midgard and of course much combat to be had um you are vikings of course so the interesting thing about the game is the reavers uh, you know which makes sense because that's the name of the game reavers of midgard these are the warrior cards you're going to get and each of these cards does a bunch of different things this is what i'm kind of excited about because i love when you have like one thing that does all sorts of stuff so when you get a card you're going to gain dice there's going to be some number of crew dice listed in the uh, top left corner, and you get those, you roll them, now you have them to use, right? But you can then also use the card in several other ways. You can do the rally action, which lets you get more dice. You can do the lead action, which you can then make this card actually, you know, part of your tableau, gain these powerful abilities, and change some of your dice symbols for, you know, to wild so you can do extra things later. You can do specialization, so there's like some action listed at the bottom of the cards if you choose to specialize this card then in the future when somebody takes that action you get bonuses that they get so lots of cool little things and ways to manipulate and build out your tableau and have kind of this unique presence on the board it looks like they've kind of upgraded the artwork here quite a bit the the artwork from champions of midgard was decent but not great the artwork here looks really solid like just looking through the different card faces and all the different stuff they have here. And I'm talking about like the the actual illustrations. The board looks very similar. A lot of the same stylistic choices there. But the actual Vikings on the cards um, seem to have gotten a nice upgrade. So I'm pretty interested in this one. It it is, you know, a hefty looking game. And as is the case these days with pretty much all uh, (laughs) Euros on Kickstarter, it's a little pricey, 70 bucks plus shipping. I'm hoping that these guys have a booth and I can give this one a go at an upcoming con. It looks really cool and uh, just excited to see what else they do with the ideas that they had in Champions and this Reaver system, which, which seems really cool with the multi-use cards. So that is Reavers of Midgard. It's on Kickstarter for, I guess, the next couple weeks or so.
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting game. Remember Champion Midgard and just being so excited about the look of this game and being able to utilize those dice in different ways. And now you get to see this game. Can I trade in my Champions of Midgard for this version? Just because, as you mentioned, the Reaver system and the upgraded artwork, and I guess the inclusion of like just having more theme in the game, and not just kind of chucking dice, but actually feel like the dice placement means a lot more than it did in the previous game. I think this game is probably going to get to the table a lot more often than the previous one yeah it's a funny thing the other one feels more gateway-ish and yeah i don't get it to the table very
0: much it's not really for my group i know a lot of people do get it out a lot which is awesome but i really just i have trouble getting that one out this one looks more in my wheelhouse more medium weight anytime you're building a tableau and you have multi-use cards and dice that you're trying to manipulate ah it's great i love i love everything i hear about it so far
2: definitely same here all right so i want to talk about a game that anthony and i briefly got to see in demo format origin's This past 2018, it is Glory, a game of knights. Now, what's really interesting about this is it is a game that utilizes Euro elements and Amerithrash elements because you will be jousting this game, which is a lot of fun. Really love the theme here. And basically, the game has a lot of different elements to it. There's going to be a solid Euro style worker placement element in which you're going to be going around the kingdom to pick up resources, to gain blessings, to be able to utilize your equipment in the best way possible. And then as the game goes on, you are going to be able to joust either versus another player or versus kind of like an AI player. And those jousts are going to come down to dice rolls. But this is not just a typical dice chucking game because you are going to be able to mitigate your dice rolls and to enhance your dice rolls based upon the set collection that you do during the game. As I mentioned, the worker placement you do during the game. And what's really interesting, it's not necessarily a role-playing element, but there's character development in this game. So I like all of the different elements here. It's really kind of wraps up to being a Really interesting hybrid model that we don't see enough these days because either people like to have just a euro or just a I honestly like the hybrids, I think they do a lot for gamers out there because you get to have the excitement of, you know, can I push my luck and that kind of economic engine as far as mitigating dice rolls and hopefully purchasing and upgrading the right equipment possible. So Really looking forward to this game when it reaches more of a developed stage. That's Glory, A Game of Nights. Yeah,
0: this one looks really cool. I, I just like the idea. You know, it's such a common theme, and yet they found a way to do it incredibly uniquely, where there's not really a game that's done it this way. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to give it to go, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Both our games that we're talking about for acquisition disorders is all about utilizing dice rolls, but not just kind of focusing hardcore on those and giving away everything like you have to build you have to build either a tribe you have to build a night up you have to be able to mitigate you have to be able to trade resources build up a tableau that's really so much of the fun that you get to enjoy once you roll the dice you feel like you're investing those dice rolls because you built a character not just okay it's your turn roll your dice and see if you win
0: yeah yeah definitely i mean that's Kind of what we're talking about this week in general is just ways that dice can be interesting because it's not, dice don't mean a marriage rash if they're done right.
2: It's true. All right, Anthony. So those are the games that we hope to get on the table at the upcoming holiday seasons. But now let's talk about the games that actually did hit the table these past couple of weeks. And let everyone know if those games are a buy and you should go out and purchase those games. If those games are a play and you should definitely sit down and play that game. If that game is a dodge and you should get the heck out of there or if the game is a dreaded burn, and you should roast some marshmallows over it. So Anthony, <laughs> what games did you get to the table this week? Okay. So the first game I got to the table, kind of against my
0: will. I'm going to say up front. Oh no, um, this is, oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it. it's a, it's not a, it's not a bad ending. Is it a um, is it a trick taking game? No, it wasn't, but it is a Splendor clone. So Ooh. yeah, it's it's called Orbis. Okay. It's Asmodee's big release of Essen, or at least their mass market really their big like push that they had. They had giant displays and everything. Um we did see a little bit of this at Gen Con, but didn't have a chance to play it. It is a game in which you are building a tableau of tiles. Thematically, I guess you're building a Pantheon or something. I don't really know, but the, the, the basic idea here is you have different tiles, they represent different elements, and they represent different worshippers of the same color element, right? So a water tile produces blue worshippers, which are little blue cubes. And those are basically the the money you're going to use to purchase future tiles. Your own tableau is going to be this pyramid. It's five at the bottom, and then it goes four, three, two. And then every tile you place on top and the next level up needs to match at least one of the ones below it. So, you know, you're going to have at least one straight line of colors all the way to the top and on your turn, very simple. There's a tableau of nine of these tiles out there. You pick one. If it has a cost, you pay it. You put it in your tableau. When you take it off, though, you put one of the worshipers from that tile on everything adjacent to it in that original tableau. So if you took a water tile out of the middle then you would place uh, one blue worshipper on the north, east, south and west tiles in that three by three grid. The reason this matters is because as you proceed, other people are going to pick those tiles up and certain tiles can build up a pretty hefty number of uh, worshippers on them. Now, you can only have a certain number of worshippers in the game. I think it's 10. Uh, So you do want to spend them. And the game does have a limited number of turns. And because as you go higher, you have limited options sometimes a tile sitting out there, you can't actually do anything with. But overall, I I like the idea of everything this game is trying to do. The reason I don't like Splendor, just go back to Splendor real quick, is that the game kind of plays itself on autopilot. Mm -hmm. After about the first two or three minutes of play, you make two or three decisions. And then basically, whatever initial uh, gems you get, whatever tiles you get, that's just what you're going to go for. Because that's now what you have. It's not very fun. <laughs> it's easy to teach, and people like it if they haven't played a lot of other games. And I guess the expansion adds some other cool stuff in there, but I just don't really like it very much. So when somebody said, "Oh, Orbis is like Splendor," and I'm like, "I don't want to play Orbis. That's <laughs> not <good." laughs> Um, I was yeah, I was a little turned off, but overall, the game it gets you about half to two thirds of the way through the game before it kind of goes into autopilot mode, and yes there is that autopilot at the end where you really have a very few choices to make the one time i played the last three or four turns i really only had one choice Uh, and a couple people didn't have any choices at points and in those cases you just take a tile and flip it over it's a negative point but the reason i think it's better is that you can plan for that you can say okay i want to have as much flexibility and variability here as I can. I can see what everybody else is building towards. Nobody is building towards water. So I'm going to build towards water because I know that those tiles will come out and I'm the only one who can get them. Like those things kind of come into play a little bit more. Whereas in Splendor, you don't really have that. There's also a God tile you can draft at a certain point. And these are end game scoring. Sometimes just a bonus you get when you get them. You can only get one. And there are as many as the number of players plus one. In the game and so they're drafted out and you choose when you want to take it if you wait too long though then you're gonna get one of two and maybe they're not very good so uh i was pleasantly surprised by orbis it's a little bit uh, just a little bit meatier than a uh, splendor not a ton i mean it's it's not a heavy game by any means but it's not so light either the theme is doesn't matter um <laughs> the artwork's fine. Uh, but the actual mechanics, they're interesting. I I don't know how much staying power it has. It needs more content to it. But as an entry-level gateway style game, I think it works. So Orbis, I say, give it a play. It's it's worth trying. Whereas Splendor for me is still a dodge after all these years. All right, so the other game I wanted to talk about, it's a little bit bigger, a little bit longer, a little bit heavier. It is The Rise of Queensdale. Now, this is a legacy game from Inca and Marcus Brand. And because it's a legacy game, Uh, Whenever we talk about a legacy game, the reviews it's a little shorter than the game might merit. This is a big game; we could do a whole episode on this game. I mean, it's there's a lot here, but there's so many things that we I don't really want to talk about because they spoil it a little bit. Not only just in terms of the mechanics, but you know the story that's woven throughout the game. I'm going to keep it kind of high level and talk about you know what that initial game looks like, what the core mechanics are, the types of things that change throughout the game. Um, not specifics, but types of things that are change over the course of an entire campaign and then kind of the length of the campaign and what that feel of flow is. Um, If you don't want to know anything about it, just, you know, skip ahead a little bit or look in the show notes and you can see what my overall rating of the game is. I I do want to give just a little bit of context because I think it needs it just based on the style of legacy that they went for. So the idea of the game is you are a king or you are one of the people sent by the king to this empty space where you're going to build Queensdale. He's trying to build a new city for his queen, right? And so he gives patches of land to four different people and the, the board is split into four quadrants. You don't have to play with four. I think it's two to four. But if you play with less than four, then there's just less stuff going on on the board. So similar to Charterstone or Seafall or whatever, less players means less stuff happening. Not necessarily bad though, because most of the stuff you're doing is going to happen in your own little quadrant. The game comes with a bunch of decks of cards and they trigger based on certain circumstances. So um the, the way it's broken down is that there's different epics. At the beginning of the game, everybody's in epic one, but once you reach a certain point threshold, you move into epic two. The thing about the game that's interesting though is that the epics-the the way the epics work is like Two is get to 10 points. Three is get to 16 points. Four is, I think, 25 points. So, what it does is every time you get to a new epic, you just have to get more points in the next game to proceed. So, you might win the first game, and now you need to get to 16 points to win, and everybody else only needs to get to 10. If you then get to 16 before they get to 10, now you have to get to 25 and they have to get to 10, which means they'll probably get to 10. The game tends to change. The most when those epics trigger, so that's when you're going to draw cards and read things and do stuff. So early in the game, you're going to have a decent number of changes and adjustments and new rules coming into play. But as the game proceeds, you might have a situation where you play two or three games in a row where not a lot changes because nobody gets to a new epic. And I think there's nine in the game, so it's not like there's not a ton of stuff to to change and overhaul throughout the game, but. Just keep that in mind, and it kind of has that slow-down catch-up mechanism. Um, Actual mechanics of the game are fairly simple. You have a set number of dice. There's five dice. You roll them all. They each have a face on them. You take one at a time taking an action. Um, Some of them, a lot of them, are different resources. So you spend that, you get the resource. There's wood and stone and brick and money, basic stuff. Some of them will let you move around the map. So when you move your guy around the map, you can flip over these herb tokens. The herb tokens have different bonuses on the other sides. Some of them are great. Some of them are just resources. It's randomized across the map. You can only flip the herb tokens that match the huts you have, though. So you have to build a hut. The big chunk of action here in the game, especially early on, is the building actions. So you build up all these resources, then you use a build action, and then you can place one of these new buildings out. And the buildings come from... Basically, whatever is available for you to do, uh, depending on what epic you are in the game. Um, You start the game with, I think, two or three sheets of options to choose from. And each of these is going to do different things. Some of them let you keep resources between games. Some of them let you produce new resources at certain points in the game. Other ones still kind of give you special abilities or bonuses you can activate as you kind of move through the game. And that's basically it going to get these tokens if you lose that allow you to um, upgrade your dice between the games as well and that's fun getting in the new little stickers to put on your dice they don't pop very often uh, so while it's fun to upgrade your dice a you don't get to do it a lot because you get these tokens based on when you lose the game and where you are when you do lose the game and b it's you're putting one sticker on one of five dice on one side. So the odds of it going, it's still one in six, but it doesn't happen every time. You might, in the course of a whole game, multi-round, you might see it once or twice. Sometimes you never see it at all. So something to keep in mind. Game comes with a ridiculous amount of stuff. Uh, It is very heavy. It's a big $80 box. Uh, The the board actually has these little hexes already pre-built into it. And you use this little plunger that it comes with, you plunge them and pull them off the hexes to either flip them over or to replace them with a different tile. The uh, mine actually came, all those pieces had fallen out of the board. So I got to spend the first 45 minutes with my copy after I punched everything that was needed in game one, putting them back, which was not fun. So that's something to keep in mind. You really don't want to store this game vertical ever to just keep it horizontal from the moment you get it. The uh, sticker sheets are kind of a mess, I will say. Uh, I really like how Charterstone did the stickers with the cards because you never saw a sticker you weren't supposed to before you needed to see it. In Rise of Queensdale, you have a big stack of like 15 sheets of stickers that have all the rules on them, all of the upgrades, everything you need. They're not in numerical order at all. So you might get a card that says, find sticker 23. And you dig through all the sheets, you see three or four things. Maybe you don't read them, but you see the picture and you're like, okay, well, that's coming. Great. It's almost impossible not to spoil yourself if you're running this game, which is a semi common issue with legacy games, but I'm just Charterstone handled it fairly well. So I just I'd like to see more games do that where it doesn't need to be this giant stack of stuff, right? Also, there's too many like you look through the rulebook and there's like 100 plus different rules and bits and pieces added to it as you go along. It's a lot of stuff. It's not that complicated of a game. I mean, if you've played Village, it's about that weight. And when you start it, the first game, it's even lighter. Um, it's it's one of those games that adds rules as you go. So I'm not going to dig too much deeper into any of that. There are a lot of things that happen throughout the game. There are different story beats, you know, um, different cards that come up based on things that happen. Um, there's a certain type of worker you can pull out of the bag that brings in mess. It's a messenger of some kind who brings in messages. You draw cards during the game, which is kind of cool. And that can kind of change things or you get a card that maybe you'll be able to look at later. Um, there's a mystic icon that's on the board and this is all stuff that you start the game with. I'm not spoiling anything right now, but the, the mystic card. And then if you draw that herb token, which doesn't happen every game, but if you do, you get to draw one of the cards off that deck and it tells you what's gonna happen in the future of the game so you can prepare for it. All cool ideas. I like all the stuff, right? The, what, the, all the ideas that are here, the way they're presented, very cool stuff. The actual gameplay is not super exciting. I mean, it's, and part of that is when you start the game, there's really not much to do. You roll the dice, you get the resources, you roll the dice, you get the resources, you roll the dice, you get the resources. And then you spend the resources and build a building. It's it just reminds me almost identical to how Charterstone started where those first three or four games, all you're doing is building up and learning rules and getting yourself used to the game so that you can eventually do cool stuff, experience cool stuff. I don't know what we have to do. I'm not a game designer, so I'm not going to say like, this is not the right way to do this. I don't know what goes into building a legacy game like this. I can't even imagine, but I just think they start too early. And they're just drip feeding you rules and getting you very slowly up to speed. If you play this type of game, if you play Village, if you play lighter games, if you're only going to play it like once a week, if you're not going to sit down and shotgun it with your friends, maybe none of that matters, right? It's still a decent game. It's not super compelling until you're half a dozen games in, maybe a little bit more. But it's frustrating to keep getting to this point of just like everybody at the table, the entire group kind of doesn't want to play anymore after about 5 plays cuz nothing is really happening that's that interesting. It you power through maybe you get to something better. Some games you do, some games you don't. But um, you know, in this case it is a little tough. Total number of games uh I don't know exactly where we ended up. It's probably just based on the number is going to be in the, the low 20s, high teens. Game length is 45 minutes to an hour, so pretty quick. You can sit down and shotgun 2-3 games in a row if you want. If you have a group for it. But it's um, you know it, it's got a bit of an arc to it over the course of those games. I have s- trouble rating these at times. Um, our typical rating scale is you know burn Dodge, play, buy, right? I think with legacy you really only have two options. there's Dodge or play because only one person needs to buy it and in my experience, Either it's me or we pool together and someone in the group purchases the game, or you just don't play it at all. So those are kind of your two options. So I've I've struggled to give you a recommendation here. Halfway through it, I would have said dodge, easy. I mean, it just wasn't that compelling. It was just dragging on. People didn't want to play. The back half definitely gets better, but is that work? does it make it worth the play? It's kind of it's a tough recommendation to tell someone hey you got to play this for 10 hours before you have any fun so i'm, I'm still gonna lean towards a dodge on rise of queensdale but it it does have a lot going for it i do like all the ideas quite a bit i this is not as strong of a dodge as i gave to like charterstone where i'm just like i ah, just don't i finished it and ugh, i just never really got into it this one It does come, you do start to feel it, but it's just, uh, I don't know, there's something about that build up and the slow, and maybe it's just because it's like a lighter game that has have little struggles with, but uh, it's kind of in between yet again. So I don't think anybody's really cracked it, the competitive legacy game just yet.
2: I think, as you mentioned, there is a lot of reasons why you should buy a game, play it, dodge it, or just outright burn a game. And as we see with the legacy games, the time commitment becomes a factor that we don't typically see in a lot of other games, typically a game, maybe around two hours, give or take. And you're like, Oh, all right. Well, I played that. It somewhat is okay. Whether it was a good game or a bad game, because you did something different. You learned something new. Typically what you learn, one game plays to another game. But when you play a legacy system, no matter what the game is, it's typically that's the game. And You're making an investment, not just of time, but also of everyone else to be there and to be there consistently, which is a drain, you know, bringing a game to a game night, drop it on the table, see who's interested in playing is one of the great things about board games that you can do that. But a legacy game takes a lot more effort, a lot more time investment. And if it's just not doing it, if it's just barely okay, it's probably not a game that you want to you know, invest in either financially or time wise. It's, it's it's very disappointing to see that because I had a lot of, uh, big hopes for rise of Queensdale. Yeah. It's really difficult. I mean, this is a game where
0: getting towards the end, I would say, yeah, it was great. We had fun. It was a good game halfway through. It would have been a more middling review. So like, as a result of that, I'm like, well, I don't know what to recommend to people. If it was, you know, you play a game two or three times, and let's say it's not consecutive or legacy and that happens in the first game, I'm like man, the second game, I'm like, oh, it's okay. The third game, I'm like, Oh, I get it. It's good. Now you could say that, like, that's your review. It's good. You should totally play it. But yeah. you know, first game might be a little less fun. This game is yeah. like, well, <laughs> it's you and four, three of your friends need to sit down for 10 to 15 hours. And then it becomes fun. I don't, it's And it's not even that it wasn't fun to start. It's just it's very slow, like a lot of these competitive, you know, legacy games. And uh, you don't always get to do the cool thing that the game promises you get to do, right? You get to upgrade your dice, not every time, and they don't always pop. They're like, ah, it's less fun than I thought it would be. So I don't know. I I, I did really struggle with this, like in terms of how to rate it. I, I think hopefully you guys get a sense of that and you can decide for yourselves if you want to play it or not. I think a lot of people really like it half my group liked it half the group was could take it or leave it and there you go that's the rise of queensdale
2: (laughs) yeah i think that's the fate of a lot of legacy games out there it's you either hit it or you miss it completely and there's no in between and you know it's kind of the holy grail of board gaming if you can pull off a legacy game you're a legend so I'm hoping that we do see a great Euro game that has a legacy feature in the future because that would be outstanding. All right, Anthony. So I want to talk about recent expansion and a recent semi-expansion and storage solution that is part of its own legacy, so to speak. And that is Mystic Veil. So I've spoken about Mystic Veil several times. If you don't know too much about Mystic Veil, we have a previous review of that and of its several expansions. But Mystic Veil basically is a card crafting system. And what I mean by that is you get the card sleeves and they're very large kind of tarot sleeves. And you start off typically with a blank or something with a couple of symbols on it. And then as the game goes on, you'll be playing those cards from your hand in a kind of press your luck mechanic. At some point, you'll stop, you'll count up the resources, and here it's mana, and then you'll purchase from a marketplace of additional inserts that you will sleeve into your larger sleeves, and now your card has been upgraded, it goes back into your deck, and eventually comes out again, and then wash, for interpiece, you press your luck, you purchase new inserts, you upgrade your cards, and eventually you get victory points, and you win the game, and everyone's happy. So the base game was pretty basic. It was not a kind of overwhelming success. It was a very nice game. It, As I mentioned, the press your luck mechanic, the card crafting system all worked very well. And it was a very dynamic system. And since then, we've seen several different expansions that really have kind of expanded on the idea of these druids kind of protecting the land and fighting against corruption and as the expansions have come out, the game has gotten progressively better. It's And especially because it's utilized leaders in the game and it's utilized a lot of the card art that represents the Druids and not just background kind of art of trees and flowers and such. So with Mystic Veil Twilight Garden, we are seeing a new expansion. Now, what's really interesting about this specific expansion in comparison to the others is it has a number of different I would say modules that are added into the game based upon these cards. So first off, if you've played Mystic Veil before, you know one of the rules is you can't cover another insert inside your sleeve. But there are inserts here that utilize what they call the eclipse system. And some of these inserts will allow you to eclipse them and actually put something over them. So that's pretty interesting because you haven't been able to do that before and it allows you to really upgrade your cards because eventually you run out of spots on those cards because the cards are divided typically into threes, typically. So blocking a spot really holds you back. In addition, the card also has now negative victory points. So of course, as I mentioned, you're collecting victory points, but now cards could have negative victory points, which really kind of like gives you a middling situation of damage, but not just all out destruction. because typically. When you press your luck, if you make it, it's great. If you overdo it, you blow up your hand, and that's not a that's not a good thing. So negative victory points are pretty cool. Curse tokens, things that will curse you and everyone else at the table, really nice. That's a nice little mechanic, kind of a little take that that we haven't seen previously in the game. It just adds a new dimension to the game. There are also legendary advancements in this game. So now some of the cards in the game are kind of a full piece of artwork that sleeves and fills up the card. Now these legendary advancements are going to fill up two thirds of a card and have a special ability. So just a little addition to the cards, you're going to have leader cards in this game, which are great because at the start of the round, you will pick one of two leaders. You will shuffle that into your deck. And now your deck has some asymmetrical gameplay. It is your deck. You are a leader in this gameplay. So, That's pretty much it in a nutshell. Mystic Veil offers a lot of different cards. And what's really interesting for those of you who've played the game a lot, you may want to know that Twilight Garden does something a little bit different because it has enough in this expansion box that you can replace almost all of the initial inserts that come along in the base set with the inserts that are here. Now, you're going to still have to use a couple of the inserts that are in the base set, so this is not a game that you can play right out of the box. You're still going to need the base game, but you can replace almost the entire base set with the inserts and the cards that are here in this game. I would recommend not doing that. It didn't seem to gel as great as I would had hoped, but I would definitely, definitely recommend adding this to the base set and to the other expansions, they all play really well together. So Mystic Vale Twilight Garden expansion gets a solid play. Now, next up is Mystic Vale Conclave. Now, Mystic Vale Conclave is probably best known for being AEG's big box holder. So basically, when you are looking to pick this up, you're like, "Well, it's not really an expansion so much as it is a giant storage box." And you would be correct. Now, this giant storage box holds not just everything that's currently out there, but probably everything that will come out for the next, I'm guessing, at least five years. This box is enormous. It has three long trays on the bottom. It also has two holdings, so you can hold all your different tokens. And on the top, it's another additional storage area for different rule books and different tokens that come in the game. Now, with Conclave, you're not just getting the box, but you're also getting some additional tokens and you're getting some additional cards. So, first off, what you're getting with this game is probably going to blow Anthony's mind, which is the ability and the additional cards to play five and six players. Ugh. Yes, I knew that was going to be your reaction. <laughs> <laughs> Why? It's stupid. Don't do it. So if you haven't played Mystic Veil before, it does take a very long time because your turn is going to go rather quick as far as pressing your luck. But then at some point, you have to purchase something from the market, and that tends to take a long amount of time. So typically, I wouldn't recommend playing with more than four, but it has what they call an Equinox variant. And basically, what this means is it's going to add at least double the amount of cards on the table so that two players can take their turns at the exact same time. One player will be the the day player, and the other player will be the night player. And they will be selecting from the day section or the night section in order to select those cards they want to put into their own decks. And basically, that kind of speeds up the game a little more. And then once they're done, they're going to pass those tokens over. And then the next two sets of players will pick their selections. And then those tokens switch. So if you went night, now you can go day. And it does speed the game up a little more, although the setup is increased dramatically. So basically what you have to decide is really where do you want to put your time? If you do have time, if you're putting on a game day, if you're putting on a tournament, then I highly recommend using the Equinox system. Basically, what it comes with is a couple of tokens and a couple of long boards that you put on the side. AEG does a nice job showing you how the setup should go. So congratulations to them on that. And there are some dividers here so that you can separate your cards in the box. In addition, there are some conclave cards, which show you some different ways to combine the different inserts that you can set up your games with. So... If you want something that's mana heavy or take that heavy, you can put that into play based upon their suggestions. There are also what they call a totem setup. So there are basically these very powerful abilities that everyone will get one at the start of the game so that you'll be able to kind of like speed up the game that way by having a kind of boosting up ability at the very beginning. There are also spirit counters. These are the four counters that every player gets that match up with their symbols that they'll be able to get throughout the game. And then as you're collecting symbols based upon playing your cards, you'll be turning those big tokens in order to show everyone, including yourself, most importantly, how many of a symbol you have so you know exactly what you can spend. So for Mystic Veil Conclave, if you do have everything and you really have a dedicated game group that is interested in playing kind of this epic variant, whether it's the five, six player player, or the Equinox variant, I recommend this game and it's big box as a solid play. If you are new to Mystic Veil, or if you only have one or two expansions, I will say stay where you are. This is really not something you need to jump into yet. I would recommend, in that case, if you were looking to pick up something more from Mystic Veil, try out Twilight Garden. It adds a lot more to the game and just a lot more interesting. And at this point, if you only have one or two expansions, you don't need the big box yet. Conclave is not there for you yet. But if you do have the means, it's definitely worth picking up. It's a solid, solid box. Awesome. Yeah, I
0: mean, every time you talk about one of these expansions i'm like i'm gonna play that again because i've still only played with the base
2: stuff (laughs) but yeah the base stuff is just generic as can be boring yeah boring so it's nice to see characters in play and all these fairies and elves and things like that and especially all these different druid powers but we're at the point where there's so much stuff that you might be interested in picking up the big box conclave when you do pick up the game All right, Anthony, so those are the games that are hitting our table. Let's get on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about one of our favorite features, if you like, where we talk about a game that we really do love, that everyone's talking about, getting to the table, and maybe, just maybe, other players are either getting a little burnt out about it, or maybe they like the game so much that they want to play games that are like that. So we take a look at the game and recognize probably what the core of the game is for gamers and try to find games that represent that game in the best way possible. So you could say, Hey, you know what? If you like Queen, Bra, you should try out these other games, Anthony, you like Queen, Bra. Why, why do you like it so much? Ah, man, I love like, there's something
0: so highly interactive about this game that is not typical for most euros. So, and the, It's the draft, right? Anytime you have a draft in a game, there's a little bit back and forth, especially in this game where the draft is twofold. You're drafting the dice and then you're drafting positions on the cards or to purchase the cards, right? Yeah. And everything else in the game kind of just feeds off of that. I mean, it's a lot of relatively typical Euro stuff from there. You're bidding, building out a tableau, you're moving around a map, you're moving up tracks, but it's all about the dice and the draft at the beginning.
2: Yeah, and it's a beautiful game. And as you mentioned, the action comes down to the dice drafting. That really is the main mechanic here. So we're going to take a look at six games that utilize that drafting mechanic in different ways. But you really brings out the fun that you find in Coimbra. All right, Anthony. So why don't you start us off on our lighter side? All right. So... On the lighter side of things, I'm going
0: to talk about Pioneer Days. Pioneer Days is a relatively recent game. I actually talked about it back in May on episode 170. It's from Tasty Minstrel Games. And in it, you are a pioneer moving your way along the Oregon Trail. Uh, At the beginning of every round, you draw a certain number of dice, you roll them, and you draft them. Everybody gets to take a die and do something with it. And these dice do all sorts of different things. You can hire different people, collect silver, take an action based on the die value. There's usually two or three options for each die, but the dice also impact things like the disasters you might have to face as you move along, because of course you're on the Oregon Trail. If you're not getting dysentery, what are you doing? It is, it's a lot of fun. It's quick, it's easy to teach, great artwork. And the dice draft is kind of the core of the game, especially as you start building up these cards in your tableau that might impact or manipulate the dice that you pull and how you get to use them so a lot of fun with pioneer days
2: yeah for me on the lighter side is a game that was a big hit at the table and that is blueprints by z-man games now this game is currently out of print but there's a lot of talk about this game coming back as a reprint so it's definitely something you should keep an eye out for so basically in blueprints you are an architect putting together your own particular structure behind a little shield you're rolling these dice and in the game, these dice represents different building materials. So you can have glass, you can have recyclable material. And basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to put together your structure the best way possible. Now, the best way possible can be by utilizing all of one color dice based upon where you utilize those colored dice and based upon the pips that are showing on those dice so there's a lot of interesting decisions in this light game but it's a lot of fun and a lot of ways to score points that's Blueprint. all right at
0: the middle level for me uh, is another recent game because cult of the new Woo! <laughs> gotta do it uh this is a game that came out last year and is gonna come out again this coming year uh it's dinosaur island dinosaur island is it's a lot of mechanics it is not just dice drafting but it is a big part of it, and I like the way the dice play a role in this game for two reasons. At the beginning of every round, you to roll these dice. They each have different possible things you can gain from them, different types of DNA or, or other bonuses you can pull from the dice if you take them off. But each of them also has a number of threat icons on them. And if you leave those dice, which tend to be not as good, and they're very high, then you're going to take the highest remaining threat icon filled die which if it adds a whole bunch of threat later on, you're going to get eaten by your dinosaurs. So you got to be careful. uh, Sometimes take one for the team or for yourself, depending on what you have out there. Um, When you're drafting the dice, it's not just about like getting something good for you and blocking something good for other people. Uh, And sometimes they all stink. Sometimes they're all great. It's a, that's the fun of dice drafting is they're often not any good choice. (laughs) Sometimes there's too many good choices. And then from there, the game spirals off and you've got you know, card purchases and tableau building and worker placement and resource management and tableau building—it's got everything. But it all starts with the dice, and um, I think it's a really cool way to kind of kick things off in this relatively straightforward game, despite the number of things going on.
2: All right. Well, my next game that manipulates dice in a really fun way is Role Player. Now, Role Player is all about rolling dice and then utilizing those dice in some really interesting way, as far as putting together a character for a D&D type of adventure. So basically what's going to happen is dice will be rolled. They will be placed out on initiative cards. And then based upon what card and die you select with that card is going to determine your initiative in purchasing from the market. So you might want to pick a low number So you can pick from the market first and pick out the best equipment possible, but then you have a low number that's going to go into your main board that typically is going to be a bad situation as far as reaching your stats and getting victory points. So maybe you want to pick a high die, but now you are going to go later or at the end of the market selection and you're going to get the last piece of equipment that's available. So there is a good juxtaposition as far as choosing from the market and adding to your player board. There is a lot of dice manipulation as far as when you place into your player board based upon where you place it. The dice are always going to be manipulated in a specific way that's going to interact with everything else on your board. So that is role player.
0: All right. My last one is my heaviest one. Um, Also, my favorite one. This is my highest rated of the three that I'm picking here. And that's Twa. This is an older game that fortunately just got a reprint uh, and it is all about, well, it's not all about stealing dice from your neighbor, but for some people, that's, that's all they can get out of it. You don't say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in this game, you are going to be, it's not a specific time in history. It's like several centuries over the course of, you know, the the development and management of an area of France, really. And the artwork really reflects that. The part of the game that really I like a lot, and some people don't, but I really like it a lot, is that you have a certain number of dice based on where your workers are located in these different types of buildings, in the cathedral, uh, in in the city hall, and all the different places throughout there. So there's white, yellow, and red dice. And then you are going to roll those, you're going to place them in your quadrant of the city, which is marked by your player marker, and all of the quadrants are going to have dice in them, depending on the number of players, there might even be neutral ones, Right. On your turn, you can use one of your dice or several of your dice to take actions, or you can take somebody else's dice and pay for them, of course. And the more you take, the more they cost. Now, that stinks a little bit if someone steals your dice and you don't have a lot of cash to steal them back, but it does open up a lot of options. So you, it initially you're like, oh, these are my dice, but really what it is is this big pool of dice to draft from, and you just have to pay for some of them, which is really cool if you think about it that way. And the number of different types of actions are is extensive. They change from game to game based on which cards come out. Uh, and there's an expansion with even more cards and more options available that also got reprinted recently. I really like it. It's tight. It's highly interactive, which kind of replicates and has that same feel like Queen Bra, where all the actions you take impact other people. And so it's important to stay engaged, which, again, is not something you see in a lot of Euros. But Trois does it really well, and uh, it's, it's one of my favorites. So uh, that's my heavier pick on the uh, the list today
2: is Trois. All right, so for my heavy pick is Grand Austria Hotel. Now, Grand Austria Hotel is really interesting in the fact that you are trying to manage this great hotel and this cafe, and you utilize a dice drafting mechanic at the beginning of each round, dice rolled. Based upon the dice rolls, The dice are going to be placed on this dice board that are going to allow you to take a number of different resources. So if you get one pips, you can take cake or strudel. If you get two pips on the dice, that's coffee or wine. Three pips, you can prepare rooms in your hotel. Four pips are going to allow you to move down the emperor track or take money based upon the dice that are available. Five pip is going to allow you to pay for staff minus how many dice are in that area. And the 6 pip is kind of like the wild, and it's going to allow you to use any of the actions at a $1 cost. This is really interesting here because based upon how many dice are in that particular area, that specific action is going to be the most valuable. But it may not be what you want, and you may decide to pass, which throws out one of the dice, and then you can re-roll those dice later and see how they land. So the manipulation of dice and drafting those things are going to benefit you and hurt your neighbor and it's really a fun mechanic that you see in queen Bra as far as which die you take and where you place the die so these are six great games that utilizing the Queenbra dice drafting mechanic in really interesting and unique ways so check those games out and of course play some more Coimbra. All right, so that's the end of this week, but not the end of BGA. There are so many great episodes on our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash BGA. Check out our Patreon account, and for just a buck, you're going to have access to our entire archive, our Patreon-backed episodes. All right, Anthony, so that's it for us for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table.